from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. For love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Yet when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this word today. Amen. So if you would have asked me the question of what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said a ballerina. And, and I think a teacher. And I'm um, doing more teaching than ballet these days. So you can all be thankful for that. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's been a week. And in the midst of a long and hard week, I made an amazing self-care decision. And that was to allow myself the last few episodes of a show that I had been saving to watch. Do you do that? Like ration the shows you love so that you can wait? Uh, Christina, I see you back there. The answer is no, because you can't ration anything TV, right? It's all or nothing for you. Yeah. Uh, and that show for me is Call the Midwife. Does anybody watch Call the Midwife? There, there are some of you. Okay. So I had waited to finish season 12 and uh, series 12, as I've learned, the, the Brits call it. Um, Brian's laughing at me. Clearly not a British TV person except for this, this show. It's a fictional show that's based on the true and best-selling memoirs of Jennifer Worth. And it tells a story about midwifery in London's East End in the, in the 50s and into the 60s. It follows the nurses and midwives and nuns from Nanata's house who are committed to providing health care to the poorest and often most marginalized people in a rapidly changing society. So this, this isn't a spoiler for anybody who still has to watch it. Um, so just trust me on that. Um, as the season closes, one of the nurses is planning her wedding. Uh, she's been engaged for a while. And she wants the nuns, the sisters of Nanata's house, to help her plan her ceremony. So she has tasked the oldest and now quirkiest nun, my personal favorite, Sister Monica Joan, for those of you who are called the midwife watchers. I love Sister Monica Joan. I see some heads nodding. You're with me. She asked Sister Monica Joan to pick the scripture lesson for the, the wedding ceremony. And so when Sister Monica Joan falls ill, the other sisters have to select the reading while she heals. 
And uh, they pick, unsurprisingly, even in the 60s, 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I think the reason I love Sister Monica Joan is that when, uh, when she regains her full strength and they told her that they have picked 1 Corinthians 13, she said, I wouldn't have picked that. <laughs> she says it more uh, well articulated, but I, I just love her for that. She always speaks her mind. And indeed, most of us think of weddings when we hear this passage. Maybe it was even read at your own wedding. And here we are on a normal Sunday morning, and I have not seen any wedding dresses. So you might struggle to think of a time that you've heard this scripture passage preach on outside of a wedding, but here you are. Last week, we heard from Paul as well, as we've launched into this sermon series. Last week, we heard Paul's thank you letter to the people in Philippi. It was Paul articulating how grateful he is to be in ministry together. He thanked them for the amazing work that had been done, and he encouraged them to keep going. So this week, I did a bit of digging about the amazing work that has been done here at Linworth. And as I was reading over the documents from the 50th uh, anniversary of this congregation, I read the words of a historian that said, the roots of any movement are varied and vague, reaching back into a period preceding and extending far into the succeeding one. So it was with the beginning of Linworth Church. There are many influences that were the roots of, of the church as we see it today, the motive power back of all these influences are twofold. First was a real spiritual desire, and second was an indomitable will to be of service. So if it wasn't abundantly clear last week, I hope it will be now. Linworth has had some amazing ministry in its hundred plus years of existence. And even if it's your first time being here, you are now grafted into the story of this congregation. So the thank you extends to you as well. But today we hear Paul in a slightly different context. Paul is writing to the faithful people in Corinth about a year after his first missionary journey to be with them. Now problems are starting to arise in this community. And while dissension is not the whole identity of the people, it's beginning to take root. And so Paul wants to get at the heart of the dissension. In the latter parts of today's reading, Paul is talking about the apocalyptic, apocalyptic time and vision when eventually the complete comes. He says in first person plural, for we know only in part and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. This is a powerful reminder to us that no matter how faithful or wise we feel like we are, there is always more to seek after. But then an interesting shift happens. Paul then starts speaking in the first person singular. It's as though he's talking about himself. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult... I put an end to childish ways. We don't know much about the circumstance in particular, but one thing is clear. Paul's journey has led his faith to change, to evolve. 
Maybe he could be talking about his former identity as a Pharisee or a religious official before experiencing the call of God. He might have even been talking about his earliest days of being a Christ follower, but he is saying that where he started is not where he is now at the time of writing. Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Have you ever done the walk past a mirror and it like surprises you, the person you see? For me, it was uh, walking past a, a shop glass window and I looked in and I saw my mother. Did you, have you had that day yet? That you looked in the mirror and saw one of your parents? Really? Really? Nobody? Okay, some of you, thank you, and it makes me think, oh, my mother was amazing. And also, I didn't know that I looked that much like her. <laughs> but in the days that Paul was in ministry, mirrors are not clear and accurate pictures of what people are used to be seeing. Now, I did a little bit of research, and by research, I mean aggressive Googling, because most of the time, when we say research, that's really just what we mean. The Binenstock Furniture Library talks about the earliest mirrors, the glass mirrors that were made of glass tiles that were cut from blown glass forms. So they were always a little bit curved and they were always slightly colored as the chemistry of the clear glass manufacturer remained unknown. So these glass tiles were then affixed over a still hot, carefully sized cast lead form with a thin layer of polished metal sheeting between the two. It was a belaboring process, so most people didn't have access to it, and it was an imprecise process resulting in mirrors that were dim and inaccurate pictures of what you were looking at. Our sense of self, our very faith, when we look at it, is not the fullest picture. We can find grains of truth within it, but it's not the clearest picture that can be known. Paul writes, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. The implication here is that no one can fully know themselves, and faith will not be fully realized until, as a well-known hymn articulates, our faith becomes sight. But just because our faith is not complete does not mean that it can become stagnant. Paul himself said to grow up, not in the sense that thinking and reasoning like a child is bad, but because operating as a, as a child is not a place that our faith can stay. It can't live there forever. A dedicated and a diverse team of people have worked through the spring and the summer to comb through the congregational data that we collected earlier in the year. And as we have worked in envisioning Linworth, we look to have a faith that evolves reflecting a commitment to a living, dynamic, and responsive relationship with God built on Christ's example. And another thing I found as I looked through the church history is a document from 2002, which, um, sorry if it stings a little bit to say, but that was over 20 years ago. You know, 2002 doesn't feel that long ago to some of us, but it was. And on that document, was a wondering of what those another hundred years from now would think when they looked back at this season of ministry. Written on that page, and I quote, they would quickly see that we have remained a visionary and entrepreneurial people determined to meet the needs of a changing society. 
they would quickly see that we have remained that. Being visionary, being entrepreneurial is built into the DNA of who this church is. And we remain dedicated to meet the needs of a changing society. But how do we do that? We continue to strengthen our foundation on Jesus. Our faith cannot be static. Our faith is not a fixed entity. And we want to embrace the idea that individuals and the community as a whole are on a continuous journey of growth and transformation in our understanding of God, in our understanding of spirituality, and how those things call us to exist in the world. This is who we have been at Linwood since our founding as the Glenwood Chapel, and it is how we must operate moving forward. And I think it is true that we are on a course to be an entrepreneurial people who are determined to meet the needs of a changing society. This doesn't mean that our faith should change for the sake of fitting in, but instead we need to have a faith so rooted in Jesus whose love extends to all people that we are willing to let our faith grow and stretch and change and evolve so that we can then take the message of Jesus to anyone around us. We will always approach the Bible through the lens of Jesus' teaching and that is Jesus' spirit of love and compassion, of grace. And doing so may mean for us that we need to learn how to be compassionate people with a faith that meets people where they are and seeks to make their picture of Jesus more and more clear with each passing day. Now, faith that changes is a hallmark of our theological heritage. We started talking about this last week in our new member class. The reluctant founder of our denomination, John Wesley, was raised in a home that had the foundations of faith. And in the early 1700s, he went to Oxford University. And he was surprised by what is quoted as the moral laxity that existed there. I wonder what he would say if he set foot on a college campus now. <laughs> That'd be a story. But a few years later, after his studies began, he began to consider his faith more seriously. Arthur Dickon Thomas calls this Wesley's ethical conversion. He wanted to put God at the center of his life and put away all of the, the ways that society was operating around him aside. He quested relentlessly after that to pursue God's heart. And many of you are aware of what we then called the Aldersgate experience, which is another converting experience that John Wesley had. He, in community study and prayer, felt his heart strangely warmed. He wrote of the experience, and I quote, In the evening I went, very unwillingly, to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. If that doesn't say revival, I don't know what does. He continues, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt as though I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins. John Wesley, this person who was methodical and exacting, he valued rigor and routine. He allowed himself to be changed. He allowed his faith to evolve, to serve his connection to Christ and his ministry, to become different. 
And as he worked to spread the gospel, he became known as a powerful preacher and organizer. And while that was happening, the literal landscape of England was changing. And Bristol, which had been a smaller town, was turning into a port city. It was booming with the Industrial Revolution. And so George Whitefield, who was a friend of John Wesley's from Oxford, had found that the more that Whitefield criticized and condemned the corruption of the church and the clergy leaders within it, unsurprisingly, the less and less he was welcome to preach in established pulpits. Imagine that. As a response, he made his way to Bristol to preach. And preach he did. He preached in the open air to coal miners. And as the crowds grew, Whitefield called upon his friends, the Wesley brothers, to assist. Now at this time, rioting was breaking out, sparked by high corn prices, low wages, and the oppressive poverty of the urban workers who found themselves in Bristol. So after receiving the invitation, John's brother, Charles, he didn't want to go. But instead, John consulted some of his friends, people that he trusted to accompany him on the spiritual journey, and they encouraged him to go. Wesley's journal from this time reads, In the evening, I reached Bristol and met Mr. Whitefield there. I could scarce reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which he set me an example on Sunday, having been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in church. From a change in morality to a change in spirituality, and finally to a change of religious methodology, methodology, John Wesley is just one example of many of how faith has to evolve and change. I wonder for you what can be gained from leaning into some Christ-centered change. How God's spirit might be calling you to look at things differently for the sake of sharing the gospel in new and exciting ways. And we are in the midst of a faith community who has endured for over a hundred years, not because it is exactly the same as it was in its founding, but indeed because of its willingness to evolve. I would think that any relationship that hasn't changed is likely not a very deep relationship. Think of a marriage, for example. Maybe you're thinking of your own. As you grow as individuals and you have grown into your understanding of each other, as Chris Goswami writes and invites us into this pondering, perhaps some of the early romance is gone. Maybe the unpredictability is gone. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who have also set about the arguing over nothing. You may find new interests to share with each other, you might have set some old interests aside. Or think about the the relationship that you have with parents or the people that raised you. It's an immense shift to move from soul dependence to a sort of equality as, as we grow older. And maybe our parents will even grow to depend on us in their old age. All of this is change. And none of this change erases the beauty of the relationship that came before. Just because you're caring for your parents now doesn't think that they think any less tenderly about your childhood. Just because you are secure in your marriage relationship doesn't mean that the beauty and the excitement of the newlywed days is gone. 
it just changes. And our relationship with God is no different. We believe that faith is not a destination, but is a lifelong journey. And so we continue to journey together. And when that journeying feels wearisome to us, we are reminded by the words of Paul and what we know to be true in the example of Jesus Christ that we journey in love, always in God's love.